A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution and an election. Stay tuned as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis. And if you like what you hear as we keep you informed about Election 44, please subscribe. On this week's episode, we are honored to have special guests, the Honorable Ahmed Hussein and Marcy Ian, both liberal candidates seeking re-election on September 20th. Marcy, Ahmed. Here at The Drip, we like to start interviews by walking through receipts. This is more than a bio. It's a specific recollection of the work you've done around poverty, the middle class, and Black folks in Canada, starting with you, Ahmed. The Honorable Ahmed Hussein was first elected in 2015 to represent the riding of York Southwestern. Minister Hussein immigrated to Canada in 1993 and settled in Toronto, where he began his career in public service after high school, working with the Hamilton Wentworth Social Services Department. Ahmed co-founded the Regent Park Community Council in 2002, and as its president, he played a key role in securing the $500 million revitalization project for Regent Park, while advocating for its 15,000 residents to ensure that their interests were protected. He was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for his leadership efforts in the Regent Park community. Serving as National President for the Canadian Somali Congress, Ahmed worked with national and regional authorities to advocate on important issues to Somali Canadians, strengthening civic engagement and integration. His results-driven reputation led to an invitation from the Toronto City Summit Alliance to join a task force for modernizing income security for adults. As a result of his advocacy work, the Toronto Star recognized Ahmed in 2004 as one of 10 individuals in Toronto to have made substantial contributions to the community. After earning a law degree from the University of Ottawa, Ahmed practiced law in the areas of criminal defense, immigration, and refugee law and human rights. He served as a director on the board of the Global Enrichment Foundation, an organization that has enabled women in East Africa to access education in colleges and universities in the region, and on the board of Journalists for Human Rights, which empowers journalists in developing countries to cover human rights and governance issues objectively and effectively. Ahmed also previously worked as a special assistant for intergovernmental affairs to former Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty and sat on the Cross-Cultural Roundtable on Security. A warm welcome to you, Minister Hussain. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this uh, important conversation. We also have Marcy Ian today. Marcy is a devoted Toronto community leader and former journalist who has dedicated her life to providing a voice for those who need it most. She was born and raised in Toronto, Scarborough to be exact, where she lives with her children, Blaze and Dash. Marcy is a passionate advocate for vulnerable communities in Canada and around the world with an award-winning career in journalism and television that has spanned three decades. 
She has traveled internationally with journalists for human rights and World Vision. And here at home, Marcy has worked with Black marginalized youth as a mentor with Trust 15, an after-school program based in Etobicoke and La Loche following the shooting at Dean High School in 2016. Marcy's passion for helping children can be traced back to her own childhood. Her father immigrated to Toronto from Trinidad and became a teacher, and she was inspired to follow in the footsteps of his commitment to helping Toronto youth. As a former journalist, she worked to promote issues that impacted young people and marginalized communities like ours, both in her early reporting at Queen's Park and later in her career at Canada AM and The Social. She supported students from our communities by co-founding a new scholarship at the RTA School of Media. A graduate of Ryerson University, Marcy later returned to Ryerson as a distinguished visiting professor and by serving on its board of governors. She has been a leading advocate against systemic racism in Toronto and across Canada. After a remarkable career in journalism, Marcy decided to enter federal politics when she announced her candidacy to represent Toronto Centre and subsequently won the seat during an October 2020 by-election. Marcy is committed to being the voice of Toronto Centre constituents in the House of Commons and continuing the fight alongside Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Caucus for inclusion, equality, and ensuring that everyone in Toronto Centre and across Canada have a fair chance at success. It's so, so good to have you both with us. It's great to be here, Patience and Curtis. Thank you so much. This is the way we need to spend our mornings. This is great. Isn't this the ideal way? I mean, we need to do this every single morning, right? <laughs> Rain or shine. Rain or shine. <laughs> we have a lot to discuss, so why don't we jump right in? So, Marcy, beginning with you, you were elected last October. You've barely been an MP for a year now. So what's the last year been like for you, and what have you accomplished in the past year in the House? It's been amazing, Curtis. We We haven't stopped. It has been nine months since... Uh, our team was sworn in and the work uh, has been great. I will say during the by-election, we were in almost complete lockdown. It was very different from this time around, which meant reaching people via telephone, reaching people virtually. And this time around, I get to see people up close. I get to connect. That's what I love to do. I get to knock on doors, have conversations, uh, listen well. But that being said, it has been nine months of great conversation, I think moving the needle in many ways. We have advocated for our communities, Black communities, Indigenous communities. I have to say Toronto Centre, I, I like to say, represents Canada and the diversity of it. We have got the largest urban or one of the largest urban Indigenous communities in the country, LGBTQ2S communities, mm -hmm. immigrant communities, and so it really is a small little portion of Canada. I say you look at Toronto Centre and you see the country. And so it's been wonderful meeting everybody. It's been wonderful understanding, but also seeing the struggles. My community, well, communities are and are and were on the front lines of this pandemic. And so supporting that way and our government was there for them and they've told me with regards to CERB, with regards to various benefits that agencies got, local businesses, Curtis and patients. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs, how many small businesses are still open uh, because our government was there and right. had their back and they tell me this. So have we moved 
the needle in the last nine, 10 months? Yes, we have. Have we been there for our communities? Yes, we have. Is there much more work to do? Yes, there is. And that's why I'm running again. I kind of take your point that you have a great opportunity to engage. And, and you know, we've obviously seen your power in engaging Canadians over the last few decades. So we know that that is a strong value of yours. Um, would you say that campaigning twice in a year is exhausting, though? I'd say that it feels like we're on a roll. It feels <laughs> like it just hasn't stopped. So it's like, yeah, we've been doing this. Let's just keep going. So it's not, it's, it's, I'm thankful for the opportunity to actually be able to see people mm -hmm. and to connect, to hang out in Regent Park at a ball game, you know, to go and visit Massey Hall and see the amazing, amazing renovation that is happening there. There's so many things and buildings and people that I get to see now that I didn't during the by-election. So mm -hmm. for me, uh, this is this is amazing. It's where I want to be. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And we've got a small but mighty team. And, you know, we feel we feel we've got some momentum to shift a little bit. So Ahmed, directly to you now, speaking about the last year, yeah. what legislation or policy are you proud of to have passed or put in place? Well, you know, the last uh, 14 months, uh, it's an understatement to say the last 14 months have been challenging for all of us. Um, but we we really uh, did a lot to be there for Canadians and we continue to do that. Uh, I'm most proud of a number of things. The, f the first being uh, working with Marcy and members of Black Caucus and the Black Canadian community to really put together and listen effectively to put together the Black Endowment Fund, mm -hmm. which I think will be transformative. And, and you know, hopefully with a re-elected Liberal government, we can move forward on that. And just for the record, for our listeners, that's the $200 million endowment fund enacted by the federal government for Black not-for-profits in particular, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I'm proud of the fact that we co-developed uh, that program with Black Canadians. And again, this is the approach that we've had from the very beginning of our government is to listen carefully and co-develop uh, solutions to challenges, particular challenges facing Black Canadians. And you know... Uh, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, a number of uh, populations, including Black Canadians, and I'm most proud of that. Uh, obviously, putting together a $350 million emergency community support fund, mm -hmm. which I was, I was the responsible minister for administering that, we made sure that the way we disbursed that support to nonprofits and charities that were there for the most vulnerable, in other words, we were there to help the helpers. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did something unique, which is to really um, think very strategically before any dollar went out, that that money would be, that, that, that funding would be distributed in an equitable manner. Mm -hmm. And we demanded uh, a proactive plan to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that, the, that the, the investments, both to the organizations, but also to the receiving populations, reflected Canada. Uh, so that's the second one. The, the other piece is the Rapid Housing Initiative. Again, we took uh, an equitable lens to it, including a Black Canadian lens, to make sure, again, that those rapid housing units are going to the most vulnerable as a response to COVID, as a response to the dislocation caused by, caused by COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, would would reflect the disproportional impact that COVID has had on Black Canadians, 
with respect to uh, homelessness, with respect to, as I said, uh, counting on some of the services provided by these incredible grassroots organizations. So if you look at Rapid Housing Initiative, Emergency Community Support Fund, and then afterwards the, uh, the bringing forth of uh, the $200 million endowment fund, mm-hmm. uh, all of that reflects uh, a willingness to listen to the community, but also uh, a strategic decision to make sure that our government uh, uh, made sure that any funding that went out in COVID uh, to the extent possible, uh, had a lens that included Black Canadians and made sure that both Black Canadian organizations and Black Canadian populations and communities across Canada were reflected in the disbursement of that funding. So that's what I'm most proud of uh, to have worked over the last uh, 14 months on. Obviously, there's also the piece around early learning and childcare, and I, I know we, we're going to cover that later. Mm-hmm. There is definitely, definitely, you know, an impact that that policy will have to, in effect, provide opportunities for low-income and racialized families and children in a way that they, they simply are not able to access right now. There's, there's just literally tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids, mainly from low-income and, and, and in many, in many aspects from racialized communities who are on wait lists, mm-hmm. who are waiting for an affordable childcare space. And there's uh, far too many uh, women, including racialized women, who would like to work if they had access to affordable childcare. So again, uh, yes, it's a, it's a national policy. It's a policy designed for everyone. But I also think it is a policy that will go a long way in contributing to the economic development of Black Canadians. I agree. On the subject of accomplishments and accomplishments for the Black community, uh, your government is proposing to repeal 20 mandatory minimums that are currently on the books, specifically all drug offenses in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, some offenses involving guns, and one tobacco-related offense through Bill C-22. You passed it in the House, but you weren't able to pass it through the Senate before Parliament rose. And now we have an election, so it will need to be reintroduced before it can, be, it can become law. Could you lay out for our listeners, both of you, what's at stake with Bill C-22? I think we all know that um, Black Canadians are significantly overrepresented in uh, the incarceration across the country. And... Um, you know, this this repeal could really, really change the, our, our lives, our families. We're, we're wondering whether Justin Trudeau or your colleague currently leading Justice Canada, David Lametti, will commit to making this a top 10 legislative priority in the next parliament if reelected, of course. I, I'm going to jump in before Ahmed, if I might, because the numbers are clear. You know, Black and Indigenous Canadians are so overrepresented in in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. 7.2% of the prison population, but make up only 3.5% of of the population. There is a group called Mothers for Peace in Regent Park. So these are moms who have lost their kids, mostly sons to violence, right? So we know that, and we hear this from the community over and over again, the devastating and debilitating impact that this has not just on on those that are imprisoned, but on their families and communities, because one person falls and the whole unit breaks. 
And so I talk to these moms all the time. They are trying to give back to the community because they've lost a family member. They're waiting for somebody to come out. They are devastated. And so they are making sure, trying to make sure that this happens to less and less families. It is so, so important to our government. It is something that is top of mind and that is prioritized. I mean, I've, I've seen it up close. I, I wanna just quickly talk about mandatory minimum penalties for things like drug charges, right? And removing those MMPs, right? It have been shown to contribute to the over incarceration of, of the marginalized groups in the justice system that I talked about. That's right. right. And this is about addressing systemic racism and discrimination in the justice system in particular, because mm -hmm. make no mistake, yes. it's there and it's rampant. Yes. And this C-22 covers so much that will help, so much that will help. Thank you, Marcy. Ahmed, we want to hear from you as a, as a former criminal justice lawyer. I'm sure there's a perspective there. So, I, yes, I, I mean, to add to Marcy's uh, powerful point, uh, I'm going to second that very strongly. This is the number one issue uh, in my uh, in, in in for Black Canadians in my constituency and beyond. Uh, it is what they've been looking for us to address for a very long time. Uh, sorry, the federal government to address for a very long time. Unfortunately, with the Conservatives, this fell on deaf ears, and mm -hmm. I am so proud of the fact that we're moving ahead on this. Make no mistake. Mandatory minimum sentences have not made our communities safer. Mm -hmm. They have simply resulted in an over-incarceration over of black and indigenous people in our prisons. Right. Uh, they have not led to an increase in community safety or uh, efficiency in our justice system. In fact, they've clogged our justice system mm -hmm. and they've tied the hands of highly trained uh, judges who uh, are able to impose a sentence that is fair and reasonable in the circumstances of each and every offender. Mm -hmm. And mandatory minimum sentences prevent that. They have, in fact, lengthened processes. They have led uh, to higher costs in our justice system. And uh, again, they haven't contributed to community safety. So this is you know, if I were to zero in, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I care about a number of things in Ottawa, but, you know, just as a member of parliament, this, this was one of the main reasons why I ran for office, because I felt that the, the Harper uh, government's emphasis on, uh, you know, incarceration above rehabilitation. Crime and punishment. Yeah, incarceration above community resilience and funding community justice programs. All of that was ignored and mm -hmm. we have to address that. And mandatory minimum sentences, getting rid of them is the first step, but it's not the only step. And C-22 is way more than that. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that we address and we tackle the over-reliance on prisons as a solution to, to, to crime and, and bringing back conditional sentence orders. So for, for the listeners, conditional sentence orders are a smart way to ensure that people don't reoffend, that they're reintegrated in their families and their communities. Mm -hmm. And for, uh, for offenders who have been found convicted of offenses that, whose sentences are two years or less and who do not pose a threat to the community, to their family or the public, there was an option before 
where a judge could sentence that person to serve their sentence in the community with their family. And what that would do is it would ensure that the person could keep their job if they were working, they could continue to go to school if they were going to school, and most importantly, they could stay with their family members and get that support and keep their home. And, um, And that, in many ways, ensures that that person has an opportunity to reintegrate themselves back into society and, and dramatically reduces the uh, chances of that person reoffending. Right. Well, Mr. Harper removed all of that, uh, removed conditional sentence order options for a number of offenses, and we're bringing that back. Most importantly, in the fall economic statement, we put forward $28.6 million for community justice centers. These are really, really important uh, institutions in our communities that deal with potential contributory factors to criminal activity down the road. Mm. And we ignored these, uh, these important um, institutions for a long time. And our party in government is the one that is reinvesting in this. We've seen that, uh, you know, these are common sense approaches to crime. We have to be tough on crime, but we also have to be smart on crime. And we also have to make sure that the criminal justice system is not being used as a blunt tool for other challenges faced by individuals. People who are facing mental health challenges need treatment. They don't need to be be jailed. The same goes for people who are facing addictions. And so it was very frustrating for me and Marcy and others to see uh, the lack of support that the conservatives gave to this bill. They delayed this bill. Uh, It was frustrating to see them hold up this really important piece of legislation for for black and indigenous people. And by the way, when I keep talking about black and indigenous uh, over incarceration, when you look at the numbers, yes, mandatory minimum sentences have had a a negative impact on all racialized people. Mm -hmm. But there is a distinct difference in the numbers, particularly for black and indigenous peoples. For those two groups, the over incarceration is even way worse than other racialized groups. So it's like, it's a, it's a whole different category. And, and so this is urgent. It is, it, is, it is a shame that this is not something that more people are making noise about. It is way past and long overdue that we address this. I am ashamed of the fact that Parliament was not able to pass this uh, quickly enough. I will do everything I can to work with Marcy to, to make sure that... Uh, we address this uh, with a re-elected liberal government. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So that's actually a very good point. Um, before we jump into our more of our economic segment, I mean, so you've known, you've mentioned this. Uh, uh, the justice minister has mentioned this. Others have mentioned this that this is, has been a priority, and yes, yet it didn't pass the house. Um, and you had the support, for example, from the NDP to to get it done. Well, it passed um, the house. We didn't pass the Senate. Right. Yes. My apologies. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what I meant to say. So, I mean, what was the holdup? I, I know you mentioned the conservatives, and and to be frank and fair, this the conservatives are literally the party of mandatory minimum. So you don't expect them to want to change what they brought into place in the first place. But outside of that, I mean, there were many concerns that the Liberal Party was holding up this legislation because it was being used as a political football. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely not. I can confirm for you that this was a very important piece of legislation for the Prime Minister, for Cabinet and for Caucus, uh, particularly for Black Caucus. We pushed this very hard. And I'm glad that we took the time necessary because we had to get it right. This was a comprehensive piece of legislation. We wanted, we didn't just want to tackle mandatory minimum sentences, although that's important. We also wanted to bring back conditional sentence orders. We wanted to make sure that the uh, black Canadian community organizations that for too long have done so much with so little are also helped because they're the ones who divert young people away from going down the wrong path. They're the ones who also provide exit ramps for high-risk uh, kids who are already in the system. And so, you know, funding for those folks, reestablishing way more community justice centers across the country, diversion uh, policies and funding to, to make that actually a reality, more funding for drug courts, more funding for diversion programs, both at the criminal justice uh, institutional level, but also at the community level. All of that is in the bill. And, you know, just to address the, the NDP uh, portion, mm -hmm. if you look at whether it is holding back payments for Canada Child Benefit uh, payments for parents or holding back supports for workers, the NDP was delaying things. They, they may not have voted against some of these measures, but they unnecessarily delayed uh, some of these uh, measures and legislation that was very helpful to our community hmm. to actually make its way to a vote. So those delays actually cost us the, uh, the, 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 the it, it, it undercut the progress that could have been made. So I don't want to get them off the hook as well. It, this wasn't just a conservative fail. It was also an NDP fail. And that's one of the sad things about this aspect because obviously the NDP makes a lot of noise about, uh, you know, fighting hard for, for our community. But in this particular case, this is a, a piece of legislation that they unnecessarily delayed. And if they had joined us earlier, we would, we would be having a, a much different conversation at this moment. Indeed. So shifting gears to economic issues and to jump off by talking quickly about the conservatives again, we see that they're they're willing to invest in businesses through their Canada Jobs Surge Plan and in tourism, retail and hospitality through their Main Street Business Loan Program. I also note that they have absolutely nothing specific for the Black community, unlike what your government has put forward since the racial revolution, as we call it here on this podcast. Could you both outline from your perspectives why it's important that there are specific supports for the Black community? And can you also give us a timeline on when all of the programs you committed to 
will be implemented because we've been happily touting your programs on the show, but the reality is that we launched the Afro-Canadian Political Literacy Foundation or ACPL recently, and we still can't quite tap into the funds to hire staff as a new not-for-profit. I'll start if I might. Um, Ahmed and I have, have worked together and have made several announcements to this point, but I want to get into the nitty gritty. So whether it's supporting Black communities or the anti-racism strategy, in Toronto Centre, a community builder like Regent Park Focus, celebrating 30 years, uh, they do media arts and they basically allow community members to tell their own stories. It's community journalism at its best. So a place like Regent Park Focus or an organization like Shoot for Peace that is led by a young man who gives cameras to kids in the community Mm -hmm. and they make amazing photography, but they're also doing excellent collabs. They're doing one with Nike Air Jordan. They're amazing. Or even things like the Real World Film Festival with Tanya Williams. Mm -hmm. All of these places that I just mentioned were given funding through supporting Black communities, through the anti-racism strategy. We made this announcement a couple of weeks ago. And I'll tell you what Tanya said. There was so much reaction, but Tanya, who was almost in tears, said that she has never received funding before. She's applied for it, never received it before. And what this means is that Black filmmakers, editors, producers, the makers of Black-focused stories will be able to do their jobs. They'll be able to learn. She'll be able to mentor. That it'll go so far. Shoot for Peace said the same thing. Regent Park Focus is journalism, community journalism. Mm -hmm. And those are just a couple of places that are doing their thing. And this is flowing to them now. This isn't 10 years from now, 20 years from now. These places are difference makers, change makers in the communities I serve. And this is flowing right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, the supports that, that our government has directed to uh, Black Canadians, before I, before I talk about that, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a surprise to me. It's, it's, it's a little disappointing, obviously, but it's not a surprise that the word racism or Islamophobia or inclusion is, is not in the Conservative Party platform. Hmm. Uh, they've never really taken these issues uh, seriously. And, um, and you know, it is disappointing, but for me, it's not really surprising. Um, I got to say that, you know, prior to the, to the revolution, uh, these, are, these were issues that were front and center in discussions within our government to make sure, within our party and our caucus, to make sure that we dedicated, named and dedicated funding for Black Canadians. Mm-hmm. And... You know, Marcy has provided some examples. I'll add to that. And, you know, the, these investments are really quietly making a huge difference on the ground. In Windsor, Essex County, there were six black Canadian organizations that had uh, capacity and infrastructure projects that they brought forward. Five out of the six have been funded. In, um, in St. Catharines, there is a church that uh, that a historical church frequented by Harriet Tubman and her contemporary colleagues who, uh, who, who worked on the Underground Railroad, that church was falling apart. And we essentially rescued that church 
with a with an infrastructure investment and that church will live on for long much longer time and and we have preserved not only black canadian history but canadian history and north american history right. with the investment through this program we've seen so many different groups uh, benefit through this program building capacity i mean for so long for so long you know be, even before i became a member of parliament and again Mem- marcy knows this mm-hmm. black canadian organizations have been asking the government of canada stop providing us with just program money mm-hmm. we need capacity building because we're doing so much the needs are so great and we we receive so little and we need to increase our capacity so that we can have a bigger impact and increase the good things that we're doing on the ground mm-hmm. well guess what it is our party in government and Justin Trudeau and, and, and the Liberal Party that listened. And we produced for the first time in 2018, and that's why I'm saying this preceded the racial revolution, this preceded the murder of George Floyd. Right. We produced the first ever federal government budget in more than 150 years to specifically name and mention black Canadians and dedicate specific funding across different ministries. And we repeated the same thing in 2019. And this year, we have dramatically increased the funding. For mm-hmm. supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, we started off with $25 million over five years uh, through um, the ministry that I, that I headed. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was able to go back to the government and, and to, my, to my party and say, look, uh, this is not enough. It, the, pro, you know, the, the funding is welcome, but the community uh, has there is so much demand and there was an oversubscription mm-hmm. and so we went back and through budget 2021 uh, that 25 million over five years was increased to a hundred million dollars just for this year right on top and and, and that plus the uh, 200 million dollar um, uh, endowment fund 10 million dollars for uh, a, men, a black uh, black Canadian focused mental health uh, approach nine million dollars for black youth. So the, all of these things happened even before the, the 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 current enhanced investments, and then obviously the three hundred and fifty one million dollar black entrepreneurship program. Again, mm-hmm. and what is amazing about that is not just the amount, but the fact that it'll be for black Canadians by black Canadians. The same thing for supporting black Canadian communities initiative. We worked with intermediaries, black Canadian intermediaries to disperse the money to smaller black Canadian organizations. Mm-hmm. So we've practiced what we preach. We've listened to the community. It was co-developed on both of these programs. A lot of this was co-developed with the community. I, I, I don't remember a time when not just, you know, stuff went beyond consultation, but co-development and, and the fast response times that some of these programs, have, you know, came from an idea that came about during roundtable meetings with the prime minister, with ministers, with caucus. And then a few months later, you see a launch of these programs. And a few months after that, the applications going out and the money flowing. For the Black Entrepreneurship Program, the money is flowing as we speak. Uh, For the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, this is the second year in which money is flowing Mm -hmm. to so many organizations across the country, including some in my own constituency. Hey, everybody. 
We hope you've been enjoying this in-depth conversation with Honorable Ahmed Hussein and Marcy Ian, both seeking re-election under the liberal banner. As we typically do, we split the full dialogue up for your listening pleasure, and this has been part one. Be sure to listen to part two, where we ask these two seasoned black leaders how they plan to appeal to the youth vote that's currently leaning in Jagmeet Singh's corner. We ask them about basic income, and we ask them to break down the liberal childcare plan, which, especially if you got kids, but even if you don't, you won't want to miss. By the way, if you didn't know, we launched the Afro-Canadian Political Literacy Foundation on August 16th. Our mission is to improve political literacy among black and allied millennials and to advocate for policy that reflects our socioeconomic needs. And we'll be using numerous tools to do it, including this podcast. Check us out at acplf.org and sign up for our newsletter so we can keep you informed. As always, thanks for listening.